Welcome to the Way Church Podcast. The Way Church exists to love God, love others, and make disciples. You can find out more about the Way Church at thewaychurchrva.com. Now we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Well, welcome. If you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 3. We're continuing our series, 1 John, Light and Love. And that's the theme you see through 1 John, Light and Love, on this cycle with the thread that holds the whole thing together being truth. So light and love. And if you're taking notes, you can title this sermon. It's more of a question. What are you known for? What are you known for? When you hear you, don't think about someone else. Think about me, right? What are you known for? And I want this question to continue to come through your mind during our remaining two hours during the sermon together, okay? Just see if you're paying attention. Everybody's like, what? During our time together, what are you known for? In the main passage we're going to look at, we're going to start off in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, which we touched on last week, but we have to back up to get to where we're going to need to be going, all right? So look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 10 with me. It says this. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now just for clarity's sake, I don't assume everybody knows what brothers and sisters mean. So for clarity, it doesn't necessarily mean loving your siblings specifically. All right? Some of you just got sigh of relief. Don't get too relieved yet. Because it's actually worse. What it's talking about, it's actually more difficult. It's talking about loving other Christians. Amen? No? Nobody? Yeah, it's okay. It's all right. You can be honest here. I know no, church is no place for honesty, but we welcome it here. Yeah, it's talking about loving other Christians, one another, other Christians. And what makes it hard is because we're difficult people. Like, people are people, and we're no different. We're people just like other people with a big difference that we're going to get to. But we're strange. We all have in our churches, we all have the Cousin Eddies, right? The Uncle Ricos. We got those, the weird cousins that, man, I just don't know. But you know what? We got, you got to love them. And that's why love is difficult. And that's what we're talking about. Love is difficult. And what we see here in First John is John continues to set up opposing arguments, opposing examples that cannot coexist together. They never will. For example, if I say near, the opposed would be far, right? You with me? Tall, you would say short. Okay, it's okay, participatory. It's all right. If I say coffee, you would say no, nothing else. Yeah, coffee just stands alone. Coffee just by itself. But John uses examples here throughout this letter that we see. We see darkness and light. We see sinful and sinless. We see child of God. We see child of the devil. And here we're going to see hate and love. And specifically what we just saw in verse 11 and 12, we see love and Cain. And to understand that rightly, we got to go back to Genesis 4. I'm going to touch on it just for a minute. Because in Genesis 4, what we see is we see Cain and his brother Abel. And they both worship God through giving an offering. But Cain's offering was accepted by God while Abel's Abel's offering was accepted by God, but Cain's was rejected. And the text is, doesn't really clarify why, but Cain's response to God's rejecting his offering, I think, clarifies why. God asked him, why are you furious, Cain? Cain was furious that God would have the audacity to reject his offering. He was furious. And so what we see here is that Cain and what God knew had a heart posture problem. It was an issue of the heart. And I would dare to take a step further that Cain was offering this offering. He was giving out of duty, not devotion. And these are completely different. This is called religion or relationship. You know what I'm talking about? Religion says, do these things. Like I go to church, right? I read my Bible. I must be good with God. Like I'm doing these things. I'm very religious. 
But relationship says done. You know what I'm talking about? So religion says do, relationship says done. Or more accurately, Jesus says it is finished. It's done, paid in full, tetelestai. That means you owed a debt, I owed a debt. We're all sinful people with a debt we could not pay, but Jesus paid it on the cross. That whoever believes in his death, that that blood spilt applies to you and cover your sin completely forever. He says, that debt has been paid in full, applied to you. It is done. Two different things. And so we see Cain gives out of duty, not devotion. And so when God rejected, he was furious. He was enraged, rage towards God, and then rage towards his brother. I wonder, do you, do, you, do you know this? Do you know that anger makes you stupid? Anybody ever experienced that? How, it's all men. You guys know that? It's all guys. Anger makes you stupid. Like, Rachel and I, my wife and I, have owned two new cars in our lifetime, right? And one of our first new, our first new car we bought, there was one day, it was still fairly new, and I was a new Christian, so this was about 20 years ago. Less, about 19 years ago. Either way, a little while ago. But we had this new car. And I don't remember what I was mad about, but I was angry. And, and I'm a Christian at this point, right? Christians don't get angry, right? No, how dare I? And so I was angry. And so I walk outside, and I had to release this anger somehow, so I punched the side of my new car. Smart, right? Sin, you know, anger makes you stupid. And so for the rest of the time we owned that car, we had this dent in the car. And over time, the paint started peeling and it started rusting, all because anger makes you stupid. And I used to really have some anger problems. And this is the point here, because I am not the person I used to be 20 years ago, even as a Christian. And so this, what we call sanctification, growing more like Christ, is not overnight, but over time, Right? Praise God for his patience with me. My goodness. So anger makes me stupid. It makes us stupid. It made Cain stupid. And I, I've been reading uh, a proverb of day. There's 31 proverbs, so it fits nicely for most months. And so I've been telling my wife this, and I don't know if she agrees with me. She's working at kids right now, so you can ask her later. But a proverb of day keeps stupidity away. You can take that and run with it. But Proverbs 14, 16 says this, A wise person is cautious and turns from evil, but a fool is easily, easily angered and is careless. Basically saying sin or anger makes you stupid, right? And that's what we see with Cain. But God gives Cain a warning. In Genesis 4, verse 7, he says, If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. So God is saying, man, I, I see your heart. Listen to me. Sin is crouching. It, the picture is like an animal crouching, ready to pounce, to devour you. He says, you must rule over it. And it begs the question, how do we fight sin? And we talked about it last week. And so I almost didn't repeat it because I know you guys know every word I said last week and hang on every word and copious note-taking goes on. But how do you fight sin? James 4, 7 says, therefore, submit. That means obey. Submit and obedience. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So how do you overcome sin? It's an obedience question. Who do you obey? Do you obey God, submit to God, or do you obey the devil, submit to the devil? And then what we see here, that Cain was of the evil one. And so who did Cain submit to in that moment? It wasn't to God. The very next verse, Genesis 4, 8, says we see that Cain kills Abel. So why did he murder his brother? Because his brother did absolutely nothing wrong. Absolutely nothing. That goes back to the question, why is good, bad things happen to good people, right? It's sin. That is why. I know we don't like that answer, but the, the world we live in, the things that we know are not right, it's a sin problem. And so Cain kills Abel, really sin, but what we see here is that his focus shifted. He justified what he did. 
So his focus shifted, God, it's your fault. Like, I did what you said. It's your fault. And what about this brother of mine? His focus shifted from God, and then to others, and his anger raged into action. It's interesting how our focus shifts like that. James 4 tells us what our issue is. When we turn our, have these anger issues, when we vent on other people, when we have arguments and fights, James 4.1 says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? He poses the question, what causes this? And he answers it in verse 2, James 4, verse 2. You desire and do not have. Basically meaning, you're a functioning three-year-old. This is what he's saying. You want what you want. And if you don't get it, you're going to throw a temper tantrum, right? We're going to vent. I know you guys don't like that. I get it. That's who we are. We just learn to deal with it a little bit better than maybe a three-year-old. But it comes out the same way. We didn't get what we want. You didn't, I owe, I earned this. You owe me this. You know, I, you owe me respect because of what I do. If we really peel back the layers of why we have arguments, why we have fights, why we have divisions, it's ultimately because we didn't get what we want. And so Cain didn't get what he wanted. So his focus shifted. Well, I didn't get what I want. I, I, I should have earned God's acceptance. I did what he said. But his heart wasn't in it. So it turned to rage against God and he killed his brother. And so we see God's kindness here. If you do what is right, watch out for sin. And this is what we see all throughout Scripture is God saying, follow me. Follow me. We see it in the garden with Adam and Eve. Follow me. Don't eat from the tree. Right? You have all these other things, but the one thing, don't do it. And what do they do? They decide to follow themselves. That's why we're at where we're at. One sin created all this mess. If you didn't know this, sin is pretty serious. God told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to follow me and believe, right? This follow me call. God told the Israelites, follow me and you won't be deceived, right? Follow me, you're going to have all these people around you. Follow me, focus on me, reject their idols, reject what they do, follow me. And we see over and over again throughout history, people stumble in following God. Stumble and stumble and stumble. But God's patient and he's kind. And it may be most obvious, Jesus told his disciples, follow me. Follow me and you will receive what he calls abundant life. Follow me and you will receive me. Follow me and you will receive becoming a child of God. Jesus said, follow me me, but it's really clear what follow me means. In Matthew 16, Jesus tells us, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. And here becomes the issue. You can't follow Jesus and follow yourself. You cannot. Will not, never. And I think we talked about this on Friday night. See, our young adult gathering, we have a young adult ministry, and we've we've creatively, creatively called it Young adult ministry, because we're that like that. We're pretty creative here. Our young adult ministry gathered, and we started talking about what's it mean to follow Jesus? Because in 2022, we have to clarify what that means, that we didn't have to clarify in the first century. In the first century, they knew what it meant to follow someone, a rabbi, a teacher. It means to emulate every aspect of their life. They would leave all behind to follow the teacher, and they would learn everything that the teacher did to do it. The definition hasn't changed, our understanding has. We're still to follow Jesus to be like Jesus, and that first takes us denying ourselves. And here's a fact. You follow what your focus is. I remember when I was taking a motorcycle safety course, getting my motorcycle driver's license. One of the best warnings that I remember so well is that your motorcycle will go where you look. So if you're riding and you start looking right, you're going to start drifting right and drifting left. And it's so true, and I never put it together until that moment. And I experienced it, right? I would, where my focus was, that's where the bike would go. It's the exact same thing with our walk following Christ. Where's your focus at? You will follow where your focus is. It's interesting. We see the apostle Peter, my favorite disciple. So I think I identify m- most with him, right? David Platt calls him the disciple with a foot-shaped mouth. 
I get it. And so what we see is Peter, you know, I will do anything for you, Lord. I will never deny you. And then confronted a couple times by this little girl, right? I don't know him. I don't know him. Then he swear he cussed. I don't know him. Three times. And so then after Jesus was crucified and was resurrected, he brings Peter back and, back and has a breakfast. Fish sandwich breakfast, right? You guys remember this? Run the fire. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Lord, I know, you know I do. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Lord, I, you know I do. Shepherd my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And the third time, Peter was grieved. Lord, you know I love you. Oh, I see what you're doing here. Because I denied you three times, right? I get it. Conjecture. But then what's interesting is after this moment he has with Jesus, being restored, forgiven, I mean, I can't think of a, a worse sin than denying Jesus to me. But God forgives him, restores him, and commissions him, saying, you're going to be one of the leaders of pillars of what I'm about to do with the church. But then he says, you're also going to die in this way. And in Peter's response, he looks back at John. He says, but what about him? Anybody have kids? Anybody ever deal with that question? Well, look, I'm not getting what they got, or why does he have that, or I want that. And Jesus says, listen, I'm talking to you. You mind your own business. He didn't say it. He says this. He says, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. Stop focusing on other people. You follow me. I'm convinced what causes envy and jealousy, like we saw in Cain, is that we start focusing on other people and what they have and what God's in their life and what we don't have. This is called coveting, right? This is why coveting is one of the top ten. Top ten, made top ten list, right? Ten commandments. Don't covet. Because we take for granted what God's given us and become jealous because someone else has what we don't. And it causes that stirring with us, that longing for more and more. And there's a more hope that we desire that the more doesn't fulfill. It's only Christ. And so the point we're going to see is, one, you're going to be surrounded by haters. You just will. You're going to be hated, but don't be like them. You see that we're called here to love one another unlike Cain. And then we're going to see you to love one another unlike the culture. Look at verse 13. It says, don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. You know, we talk in, or young adults were talking through this, and I asked, is there something that surprised you when you came to faith? Like that you didn't know before you started following Jesus, that you knew afterwards. And for me, one of the ones is, I knew the gospel as a believer, as a young believer. I knew the gospel. I knew I needed the Lord. I knew I had this sin issue that nothing can solve it, nothing can cleanse me from it, except from Christ alone. And I believed it. But I didn't necessarily know what it meant to be a follower initially. And so what John is saying here, he's just quoting what Jesus told his disciples. That's why he says, don't be surprised. In John 15, verse 19, Jesus says, however, talking to his disciples, because you're not of the world, that's important, but I have chosen you out of the world, the world hates you. Because you're not of the world, you are different, you're following me. I have chosen you out of the world, so the world will hate you. So John says, don't be surprised. Cain hated his brother. The culture's going to hate you. This should not be surprising to us. So the point we see here is that Cain is known by his hate. That's what we know him by. We also see that you will know the culture by its hate. And the question we're going to keep bringing up is what will you be known for? What will you be known for? Or what are you known for now? You see in verse 14, 1 John 3, it says, We know that we have passed from death to life, because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. And this begs some clarity. Last week we talked about that if you're following Christ, you don't sin. Well, we know we do sin, because in 1 John 1, he says, you're deceiving yourselves if you think you don't sin. But are you okay stuck in your sin is a problem. 
There should not be an okayness being stuck in your sinfulness. In the same way, you should not be characterized by your hatred. There's no way. What are we known for? Are we known for our hate? Or are we known for our love? And so, I mean, just think through this. Because I was going to ask the question, but I was afraid of what the response I would get. Have you ever murdered someone, right? Yeah, don't, don't raise your hand. I don't want to see. Have you ever hated someone? That gets a little more real, right? Yeah, maybe close. But Jesus clarifies it. In Matthew 5.25, he says, You've heard it said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Ouch. I don't know about you, but God just connected murder to anger. And that's what John's getting at. Are you known for a lifestyle of being angry, hatred, basically borderline murdering people with your thoughts? Maybe with your words. Maybe with your actions. Don't raise your hand. There's no way a Christian can continue harboring hate after being wrecked by God's grace. There's no way. I know it's a bold statement, but you cannot harbor hate after you've received the amazing grace of God. You cannot. And I think when we do, we've lost perspective on what the Bible shows us. Ephesians 2, we just see how great God's grace is. Verse 4 of Ephesians 2, he says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had given us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. Anybody know what dead people do? We talked about this last week, right? What does dead people do? Nothing. You're dead. There's not levels of dead. You're just dead, dead. That's all it is. Dead. Helpless. He says we're dead in our sins and trespasses. Spiritually dead. But God, because of his mercy and grace, made us alive. It reminds me of the prodigal son. You see this account, this story, rather, this parable that Jesus gives in Luke 15. It's interesting that Jesus is talking to a crowd, a crowd of sinners, tax collectors, Pharisees, religious leaders. It's all mixed into this crowd he's talking to. So it's kind of something like this, Right? And he gives this story about this father who had two boys. And this younger boy comes to his dad and said, Dad, I want my inheritance now. Essentially saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want your stuff. And it, what's crazy, I think we miss this. In this culture, it's not like kind of what we do in church. Like, you guys are so nice. You sit there and listen to everything I say and maybe nod and maybe move every once in a while. Mm, that's good. Mm. Maybe an occasional amen. This would have been a rowdy bunch. Because what the prodigal son does would have been totally counterculture and would not have been accepted. They have been an uproar. He did what? He asked what from his dad? His dad's still alive? What in the world? And so he asked, Dad, give me your inheritance. And you know it's a Jesus story because the dad did it, right? So dad does. And the son gets his inheritance, goes, sells his all, and squanders it on crazy living. And he gets to the point where he had nothing left. And so he starts working, feeding pigs. I don't know if you know much about Jewish culture. It's not a good job. Makes you unclean. That's a disgusting animal. So he's now totally unclean. Probably can't even go to what we'd call church, right? Totally unclean because he's been messing around with pigs. And he gets so desperate that he says, I'm so hungry. That if only I could have what the pigs are eating. Have you ever thought about God's kindness being revealed to you by letting you get to rock bottom? Have you ever thought about that God's kindness? Because sometimes we have to get to rock bottom before we see our need for a Savior. I don't know about you, but I can be pretty hard-headed sometimes. And so he hits rock bottom. And he remembers, my dad's servants are being treated way better than I am. So maybe I can just go back and work for my dad as one of his hired servants. So he starts reciting this, what he's going to say to his dad. Dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. So he's reciting this. So he gets up the courage to go back home. 
And so he goes home, still reciting this, right? God, I've, Dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And his dad says, it says, his dad sees him from far away and runs to his son. Runs to him. And this is crazy because we think, oh, that's, that's nice. Running was disgraceful for a man in that culture. They would have to hike up, gird their loins. You heard that term? Gird their loins. You have to hike up the robe, show some of that man thigh, which is nobody needs to be doing. I've been watching March Madness. Those shorts are getting shorter. And then runs to his son. He doesn't care about disgrace. He sees the son that he loves has finally returned and runs. And as soon as his dad gets there, the son starts going, Father, I've, I've, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And his father doesn't say anything to him. He says, go get the robe. Go get the ring. Go get the sandals. Fatten the calf. We're going to celebrate bringing you back to the family. Because what he says here in John, or Luke 15, 23, he says, because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's celebrate. And the point of this story is the father's love. We can talk about the other son. We'll do that some other time. But this is a love the Father, God, has for people. You know, I hear all the time, I've sinned so, so much, there's no way God can forgive me. Or I won't even dare to come to the church because the building will burn down. Give me a break. I've heard it. It's crazy. You do not know God's love, if you, that's what you think. You may know your sin a lot, but you don't know how great God's love is that covers that sin. That's why I think this prodigal story, the prodigal son story is so impactful because you see how great the father's love is. And God that we see, God is known for his love. Even people that don't know much about God, they know God has to be loving. God is known for his love. In 1 John 4, he says God is love. That's who he is. So God is known for love and God has proved his love. That's what we're going to get back to here in a minute with us. But God proves his love. His love is proven. Look at verse 16. This is how we come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech but in action and in truth. See, what we see here is love chooses to sacrifice self for someone else. Love chooses to sacrifice self for someone else. Other people focus. I don't care how old you are. This is, we have to get this right. This type of love we see as Christians that we come to know is always others focused. And it's a choice. And what we see here is God chose to lay down his life. You see that? He laid down his life for us. And I think the for us gets us in trouble sometimes. Because I think we miss the depth of God's love and his grace when we start seeing us. Because us, we typically think we're pretty good people. And y'all are. Y'all are pretty good people. This 2021 study I found says 81%, 81% of Americans say they believe that people are inherently good. 81% of people that think that people are inherently good. And 46%, I love this, admitted that they're better than everyone else they know. <laughs> uh, it's, so this is how we view ourselves. And this is a danger because we see that God laid down his life, and some of us think, well, of course he did, because I'm pretty good. That's not what the Bible says. I think we miss the depth of our sinfulness and what God really did and how amazing his love and grace really is. See, God's knowledge of us isn't quite as encouraging as our knowledge of ourselves. Romans 5, I go back to this all the time. Romans 5 verse 6 tells us that while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. If you want to put ungodly in parentheses, Steve, Joe, Susan, your name, Josh. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps, someone might even dare to die. 
But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not quite as encouraging as our perspective of ourselves. The Bible calls us ungodly, helpless sinners. And at that time, Christ laid down his life for us. And our condition is so much worse than we realize. It's not that we sin, but rather that we are a sinner. It's not that we lie, but we're a liar. It's not that we steal, but you're a thief. Welcome to the way, church. Our connect cards are in the back. Get plugged in. But it's true. For example, what it would look like if this past week that we were able to somehow record all your thoughts and then come here Sunday morning and just display them and see what your thought life looks like. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't fare so well. And can I say that as a pastor? Is that all right? Yeah, I'm a wretched sinner. Probably worse than you even know. And it starts in our thoughts. It's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 19. He says, from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, slander. In this condition that we have, Christ laid down his life so that you can live. To bring us from death to life. John Newton, author of the song Amazing Grace, he says this. He says, I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. This is the truth. This are the facts. We have great sin. We're great sinners, but God is a greater Savior. And the great love, like we looked at last week, lavished over us. So it says, but God, despite who we are, chose not to leave us in our condition, but to love us in our condition. Knowing fully who we are. But then it makes us a step further. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 27, we see that he being God, made the one who did not know sin, being Jesus, to be sin for us. So that in him we might become righteousness of God. So God, seeing our depravity, our sinfulness, how wretched we are, stepped in, took our sin, so that in him, by faith alone, in Christ alone, are declared righteous, a right before God. He took our sin and bared it, because we could not. And this is where our facts shape our feelings. This has been just resounding in my mind over the last couple weeks since we talked about it two weeks ago. Facts shape feelings. The fact that God's love for us shapes our compassion towards others. That's what we've seen in this, pa- this, this passage. The fact that God's love shapes our compassion for others. And the fact of God's love shapes our confidence in our Savior. Because sometimes maybe you don't feel as close. But it's not your feelings. Your feelings lie. The facts are the facts. And we see the facts of God's amazing love that he lavished on us. Which leads us into verse 19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. So he says, this is how we know. When your hearts condemn you, this is how you know that you belong to the truth. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows all things. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. See, seeing your own sin raises two opposing feelings, potentially. Number one, when you're, confaced with, when you're faced with your sin, it could bring condemnation. And this is a lie for all those who are in Christ, a lie from the devil. Condemned. It's a building term. No longer fit for use. Anybody ever felt that? You're not good enough. You never will be. Every Sunday morning I feel it. Who am I to stand before you and teach the Bible? That's the point. 
We are just like one another. We all have this sin issue. But that's when you take that feeling, if you're in Christ, and remember the fact that you're not condemned because your identity is created and rooted in Christ. You've been made new, a brand new building. It's not renovated. You are brand new. You're a brand new person. That old person that was dead is now fully dead, and you've been made alive, reborn, brand new in Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. Romans 8.1 says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is where fact-shaped feelings. Our hearts can lie. The scheme of the devil plays in your thought life. Yeah, but you, you'll never be forgiven for this. Like, we rack and stack sin, don't we? Like, you'll never, we have murder up here. We have our white lies down here. Consequences are all not the same. But one sin separates. It doesn't matter what type. And this is where we lose it sometimes. And so the devil will be like, nah, you will never be forgiven for that. God cannot ever forgive you for what you did to that person. It's a lie. His blood is sufficient to cover all sin. So one feeling when you, have, you see your sin it could be condemnation. But remember the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The second feeling for those who are in Christ Jesus is conviction. And this is a good thing from the Lord. This is kindness from the Lord that shows you something that you're doing is dangerous, ultimately. It's not good. It's separating you from God. It's not good for yourself, and it's going to have consequences for those around you. It's not good. But the good news is when you are convicted, this is God's grace in your life to showing you to turn. That's what repentance is. It's a turning from your sin. I've been following this, right? My focus has been on this, but now I see this finally for what it is. It's a lie, deceptive, hurtful, damaging, ungodly. And I'm turning back to my Savior. 1 John 1.9 tells us this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the good news of the gospel. Psalm 103 tells us like this. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. I think we get in trouble here sometimes. As far as the east is from the, the west. And we think global. So we're like, yeah, so if you keep going east and west, what happens? Yeah, there's still sin, right? Think gospel, not global. Like once you confess your sin, lay him down to the feet of Jesus, know that you are forgiven by faith through his grace and his mercy for the blood that shed on his cross for you. So you don't have to bear the sin consequences anymore in your relationship with Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. We, we all sin, we've all fallen short, but by God's grace, we've all can be made new through faith. And I, I tell you what, what just in my soul, I struggle with this all week, is knowing that potentially in this room, but in churches across America and across the world, there's people that know so much about Christ, they think they're Christians, are completely missing it. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. That's religion. Relationship is what matters. It is finished. It is done. Do you trust in that? Or are you trying to earn it still? You can't earn your salvation. You can't earn your right standing with the Lord. God credited his righteousness to you by faith. This is the whole book of Romans. Faith alone in Christ alone. By God's grace alone. But knowing this creates confidence in your prayer life. Knowing this creates confidence in our prayer life. And it says, whatever you ask, right? We love this passage. Whatever I ask, whatever I ask will be given to us. Did you know that Jesus had an unanswered prayer? You're about to say heresy, right? Jesus had an unanswered Do you remember at the garden, moments before he'd be betrayed, do you remember what his prayer said? Do you remember what he prayed? Lord, let this cup pass from me. But he didn't stop there. But your will be done. Right? 
so we pray with confidence because of our relationship with Christ, knowing that he is praying on our behalf. We have a Holy Spirit. We don't even know what to pray, so the Holy Spirit prays for us. So when we pray, we pray with confidence because God is God. We pray according to his will, and that's what John clarifies in 1 John 5, 14. He says, this is the confidence that we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That's important. As much as I would love to drive a Lamborghini around, right? That'd be super fun. It's not going to happen. Just not going to happen. I'm not praying for it. really don't want it. I just punch it anyway. You know what I'm talking about? Kidding. We, we have confidence in the Lord because of who Jesus is. So when the lies from Satan start creeping in, but you did this, you did this, you did this. Yeah, I did. But God's grace is greater. His love is greater. Let's praise God for his patience and his amazing grace for us. Which leads us into verse 23 and 24. Now this is the command, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. And love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commands remains in him and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he has given us. So we need two commands. Two commands here. Command number one, that you believe. Why is that a command? Isn't that weird? Command you to believe. Because your faith is the only thing that matters. You believing is the only thing that matters. That's the only thing that changes everything is your belief that Jesus paid the price for your sin. This is a command. In John 1, verse 12, it says, But to all who did receive him, being Jesus, he gave them right to be children of God, those who believe in his name. So there's one instance that everyone created ever in the world are a child of God in the emphasis of made in his image. Everyone, for all time, forever, has been made in the image of Christ. It's called the Imago Dei. But not everyone is in his family. That comes through Christ alone. So we're commanded to believe because God desires for you to believe. Just does. That's why he paid the price in Christ. Proved his love for you. So do you believe? Because it all starts there. Everything else doesn't make sense if at first you don't believe. Love does not make sense until you believe what Jesus did for you. That's the standard of love. That's how we're to love one another. Which leads us into command number two, love one another. We're commanded to love. And what John's reaching back to is what Jesus said. Do you remember that? In John 13. 34, Jesus says, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I've loved you, you're also to love one another. That's important. When you see how Jesus loved, and we're called to imitate that kind of love. Just as I commanded you. I'm convinced why it's a command, because this kind of love is hard to do. We're hard people to love. I'm a hard person to love. But love is a choice. And it's sacrificial and it's other focused. And we don't love based on what you can do for me. It's not based how you treat me. I'm going to choose to love you anyway because God loved me, the wretched sinner that I am. And so would I expect anything else? No, I, I choose to love because of the love I've received. That's why we're commanded to love as Jesus loved. The thing I do when I do marriage counseling, I love doing marriage counseling. But there's one illustration that just wrecked how I viewed loving my wife. Early on, I don't remember how, where I saw it, and I'm sure many of you have seen it, but it's a, it's a picture of a pyramid. And it had God at the top, and my wife and I at the bottom, for example. And I always struggle with, well, I know I'm supposed to love God first, but how do I love my wife if I'm loving God in this tension? I just don't understand what it means. And as simple as I am, this image of a pyramid just completely wrecked and really clarified what this meant. Because what happens with God at the top and us at the bottom, the more we follow Christ and love God individually, we actually start growing together. And this is the point, that when Christ is your focus, it makes it a whole lot easier to love others. 
It makes it a whole lot easier for Rachel to love her husband, me, when Christ is her focus because I, I let her down. I fail. I fall short. But her standard of love isn't bent on me. It's, it's Christ. And so you use whoever that is, God at the top and you and the other Christian, right? You and your spouse, you and your sibling, you and your friend. You follow Christ and let Christ's love work through you. He is the standard of love and the original love. We cannot love in this way. We're unable to love in this way in and of ourselves. This is only by God's grace and the Holy Spirit that works through us. And this is why we look different than those around us. In that same passage, John 13, 34, he says, I command you to love one another. But in verse 35, he says this, by this, meaning this kind of love, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This kind of love looks different. It stands out. It's the city on a hill. It's the light in the world. It's the salt of the earth. This kind of love looks different because it's completely sacrificial and others focused. This is how the follower of Jesus will be recognized, by his love. So going back to where I started, it begs really two questions. What will we be known for? And I say we as the church, the local church, the way church. Think about this. What are we going to be known for? Because there's going to be a time that this church will no longer exist. Whether when Christ returns or before, God knows. But there's going to be a time when this church no longer exists. What will we be known for? Will the community miss the way church when this church doesn't exist if God tarries? Will we be known for our love? Or will we be known for some church that did some cool events at Short Pump Park? I pray we're known for our love. For everyone that walks in here, I pray they feel God's love through you. I pray that as we go, because we gather to scatter, as we go, I pray that God's love flows through you to a world that desperately needs it. Confused about love is. Show them what the love of God is. What will we be known for? And the follow-up question, what will you be known for? What What will you be known for? Will you be known for your love? Again, I'm convinced if you've known, come to know the depth of God's amazing love for you, and while you, you were and are who you were and are, God loved you anyway. This is amazing love. And so if you leave here this morning and think about what a wretched, black-hearted sinner that I am, you've missed the point. And maybe, I mean, we are, right? But God has created you new in faith, in Christ Jesus. Through Jesus, you're no longer that person in God's eyes. You have a new identity as a child of God. This changes everything. This gives you hope. This gives you security. This gives you peace, comfort. This is why we don't fear. This is why we're not anxious, because God is God, and we are his. Forever secure, chosen in him. That fact shapes every feeling that you'll have. As we close... I'm going to ask you to respond. I'm going to ask you to respond to what God's doing in your life. Maybe God's showing some things in your life that you didn't even know were there. And that's what we pray for every single Sunday as we gather, is that God shows us blind spots in our life by his kindness to shape us and mold us more and more in his image, like Christ. Over time, not overnight. But what what has God shown you this morning? Maybe there's some harboring hatred in your life. Maybe there's some unloving going on through you. I'm going to call you to repent. Because it's sin. Hating is sin. Being unloving is sin. And that's the whole point that we see here. We cannot harbor those things on a continual basis. When they arise, what do you do with them? You remember the fact of God's amazing love for you and forgiveness for your sin. How can we not then extend forgiveness even when that person doesn't ask for it? Because that's our... That's how we quantify, right? Well, they didn't ask for it, so I'm not going to give it. Is that what the Bible says? Is that the example Jesus set? While we were still sinners, he died for us, the ungodly, the helpless. He didn't wait for us to, God, I'm sorry. Okay, now I'm going to die for you. He didn't do that. So how dare us withhold forgiveness, withhold love for those around us? It's not going to be easy. 
But that kind of love will stick out to a world that doesn't know what love is. What will you be known for? And maybe you're here and maybe you can quote all the facts. You've been about, you've been to church every single Sunday, but you've missed the relationship with Jesus. I pray the Holy Spirit leads you to see how amazing his love is. How much he has proven his love for you. I'm praying that he brings you to faith, trust, Jesus as Lord, surrendering everything to him because he's completely and fully and always trustworthy and cares for you and loves you deeper than you can ever imagine or fully know. This is the God we serve. This is the God we worship. This is how we come together and worship and praise him. No matter what happens in our life, we know that he's faithful and he's good. He's love. So what that looks like, I'm going to invite the band up and we're going to sing one last worship song. I'm going to invite you to respond in worship. And that may look a few different ways. It may be standing and singing out of praise to God, worshiping him because he is worthy of worship. It may be you sitting in right where you are, worshiping him through prayer and repentance. May prayer for strength over your feelings. May prayer of resisting revenge. Maybe God's showing you areas where you strayed. Maybe you sit there in prayer asking for forgiveness and guidance and wisdom and strength and endurance. Maybe you pray with someone else right around you. Well, the prayer team over here, we'd love to pray with you and pray for you. Maybe you're sitting, maybe you're kneeling, maybe you're standing. We're called to gather, and it's so encouraging as we gather, but the danger as we gather is we look to one another to how we should respond. You respond to what God's doing. What that looks like, let's continue to worship him and just thank him for his kindness for what he's doing in this place at this moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for bringing us here this morning. It was no accident, it was no coincidence that we are here. It is by your goodness and your kindness that you brought us here together. Lord, I pray right now that you just move in a mighty way in our hearts, in our minds. Lord, continue to reveal the amazing truth of your amazing grace. Reveal to us how much you love us and how you've done everything to show us, to prove how much you love us. Lord, shape our hearts to receive your love and to live out your love. Let your love flow in us and through us. And Lord, I ask if there's anything in our life that is holding us back from fully trusting in you, show us it and remove it, Lord. Show us how completely trustworthy you are. Show us how completely good you are and how faithful you are and how loving you are and gracious and merciful you are. Lord, I pray that this truth just washes over us today. Lord, I thank you for your kindness and your patience with us. Lord, lead us in this time of response. Lead us in this time of worship. Father, create a focus in us on you and you alone. Because you are worthy. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Way Church Podcast. If you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to someone about a personal relationship with Jesus, please contact us through our website at thewaychurchrva.com.